Alright, on to our next chapter. This is going to be chapter 15. Uh, it's titled Slavery and, and Antebellum America. Alright, so we're going to start off with the idea of King Cotton or the rise of King Cotton. So, prior to 1793, the southern economy was weak and you had these depressed prices, you had unmarketable products, uh, the, the soil itself was just kind of ravaged by, well, by cotton. Because, you know, as you know, it takes a lot of the nutrients from the soil. And then economically, we had this whole risky, you know, slave situation, the slave system. Uh, some lenders, like Jefferson, who ended up freeing about 10% of its slaves, believed that slavery would gradually die out, but it could not be done immediately. Uh, he was quoted to say, we have a wolf by the ears. It's one of those instances of, you've got a wolf by the ear, now what do you do with it? You know, if you let it go, it could bite you. Um, and that was kind of the sentiment for a lot of people of that time period. Uh, we get Eli Whitney's cotton gin in 1793. And the, the impact of that is a lot of the cotton production is going to be very profitable now. So you get 50 times more efficiency than if you were picking cotton by hand. Now this is going to result in an explosion in slavery in the lower south. And this is because you needed more hands when it came to dealing with the cotton because you could now push into more land you can add into a you know a bigger cotton empire more textiles can be made from this so they're starting to push more toward uh, England Europe in general and up into the north with those textile mills like the the Lowell mills uh, cotton is going to end up starting to surpass things like tobacco rice and indigo even though those are all cash crops cotton will become the cash crop uh, the cotton kingdom is kind of what this area was it developed into a huge agricultural factory so western expansion is going to spread to the lower gulf states so louisiana mississippi and alabama and slaves are going to be brought into these new regions in order to cultivate you guessed it cotton uh, there's going to be a huge domestic slave trade that will emerge because in 1808 the slave trade or the import Im, the import of slaves from Africa is going to be abolished. So now it's going to be a domestic um, well, domestic business really. A lot of it's going to come through the Mississippi, especially places like Missis or like uh, Memphis. Okay, so trade. Now, cotton was exported to England, like I was telling you, and the revenues from those sales of cotton are going to be used to buy northern goods. And Britain was heavily dependent on the U.S. cotton for its textile factories. And about 80% of all the cotton that Britain used came from the United States because we've talked before that England was very much landlocked and there wasn't exactly the, the climate for cotton anyway. So... You get down into the you know the rural areas of the south and it's perfect for cotton now the prosperity of both the north and the south are going to come to rely on slave labor because like i said they're sending the cotton to the textile mills that is dependent on slave labor now granted it was indirectly but the northern states did continue to perpetuate the whole idea of slavery as well 
Uh, cotton is going to account for 57% of all the American exports by 1860. And the South is going to produce 75% of the world's cotton. Now, the South was divided into what was considered to be the three Souths. You had the Border South, the Middle South, and the Lower South. Now, there was kind of some generalizations that went along with this. So, the further north you went, the cooler the climate, the fewer the slaves, and the lower the commitment to maintaining slavery because it wasn't needed, so it wasn't profitable. So, this all goes back to capitalism. We've talked about that. Uh, the further south you went, the warmer the climate, and the more slaves and the higher the commitment to maintaining slaves. So, when you get into the mountain areas, so, you know, those who were who were white and lived in the mountain areas, especially along the Appalachian uh, Mountains, were mostly side with the Union in the Civil War. Uh, they lived in places like western Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, northeastern Kentucky. Sorry, I said Kentucky twice. They lived in western Virginia, which is why we ended up with West Virginia because of slavery. There was that, there was that division. So, western Virginia, eastern Tennessee, northeastern Kentucky parts of uh, South Carolina, mainly western, and then northern Georgia and Alabama. Now, the southward flow of slaves from sales is going to continue from 1790 up until 1860 when we get into the Civil War. And there was not a unified South except for a common trait of resistance to this perceived outside interference of the federal government, the whole state's rights business. Okay, so the border south. Now, this is going to consist of Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. So, plantations were more scarce in this area. The cotton cultivation was almost non-existent. Uh, instead of cotton, tobacco is going to be the main crop. And this is going to be the same as in the Middle South. And there's going to be more grain production, same as the Middle South. Uh, unionists would overcome the, the disunionists during and after the Civil War. By 1850, slaves are going to make up around 17% of the population with an average of five slaves per slave holder. By 1850, also 21% of the border south's blacks were free. So, you know, that's obviously possible, possible, positive. So, you're getting to, you're getting more and more freedom in these border states. And this is going to be about 46% of the entirety of the free blacks in the South. 22% uh, of all white families owned slaves. So this wasn't exactly a, a thriving business in these, in this, uh, these border, border states or the border South. Uh, it comprised 6% of all southerner, Southerners who owned more than 20 slaves in the South. And it only comprised of 1% of the South's ultra-wealthy. So most of that's going to be, you know, further down as we go. It's going to produce over 50% of the South's industrial products. So that proves that you can have, you know, industrial products without slavery. Uh, Middle South, that's Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. So each state had one section that resembled the border South and another that resembled the lower South. Uh, some, there were some industrial products production uh, like you had ironworks in Virginia and they used slave labor. Now the unionists prevailed after Lincoln was elected and the disunionists prevailed after the war began. Uh, many plantations are going to exist in places like eastern uh, Virginia and western Tennessee and by 1850 slaves are going to make up 30% of the population with an average of eight slaves per slaveholder. 
and 30 36% of white families owned slaves. And if you remember, 22% was in the border south. So the lower south, so this is everybody else. So South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, and Texas. Most slaves lived in what was called the cotton belt or the black belt of the deep south, especially among the river valleys. Uh, the river valleys are obviously very fertile. A lot of these areas have been drained and used to continue crop production. Uh, plantations were prevalent. Cotton was considered to be king. Uh, the region was region accounted for about 95% of the South's cotton and almost all sugar, rice, and indigo. Uh, the disunionists, so this is these secessionists again, would prevail after Lincoln was elected. Now, by 1850, slaves made up 47% of the population with an average of 12 slaves per slaveholder. This is less than 2% of blacks were free and only accounted for about 15% of the slaves the South, sorry, free blacks. 43% uh, of white families owned slaves, 62 of which owned 20 or more. And this region contained 85% of that ultra-wealthy group. Now, slavery was known as the peculiar institution. So you had the planter aristocracy that was part of this. So the South, South why can I not say South today? The South was ruled politically and economically by these wealthy plantation owners. owners geez. Uh, in 1850, around 1,700 families owned more than 100 slaves, but they're going to dominate the Southern politics. The South, South was the least democratic region of the country. There was a huge gap between rich and poor, and there was very poor public education because planners sent their kids to private schools and everyone else, well, so sorry. Uh, the plantation system itself required heavy, uh, heavy investment of capital into slave labor. It was very risky because slaves may die of disease or injure themselves or escape. Uh, there, it was very, it was a, a mono crop. So you, this this idea of one crop economy. So it would either be just cotton or just sugar or just tobacco, that kind of thing. It discouraged any kind of diversification of agriculture, especially when it came to manufacturing. And Southerners resented the North. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the Southerners resented the North's huge profits that were at their expense because. Remember, they're prov they're providing that raw material, and the refined material is what sells for the most profit. Uh, they also resented being dependent on the northern manufacturers and the markets, and they complained about northern middlemen, the bankers, the agents, and the shippers. Uh, the South rep repelled large-scale European immigration as well. Only four, about 4.5% four of foreign-born Americans were part of the South's population in 1860, uh, while there was about 18.5% in the North. Uh, slave labor was far cheaper. Fertile land was too expensive for most immigrants, and immigrants were not familiar with the whole idea of cotton production. Uh, the South was the nation's most Anglo-Saxon or English region. Okay, so plantation slavery. 
All right, nearly 4 million slaves lived in the United States by 1860, and this quadrupled in number since 1800. Uh, legal imports of slaves from Africa, they ended in 1808, like we discussed, but thousands of slaves were, are going to still be smuggled into the South despite the death penalty for slave traders. It was such a lucrative business that people would literally go up against, you know, hey, I could be hung for treason, or, well, not treason, but I could be hung for going against this, but I'm going to do it anyway, because like I said, it was very lucrative business. Uh, the increased population was due to natural reproduction, and they basically treated these people like they were cattle. You don't want to overbreed cattle, the same thing with slaves, they did not want to overbreed them because then the the price would go down. It wouldn't be as lucrative for the slave traders. Uh, owners still rewarded slave women for multiple children, though. So you got a reward for having more babies to be put into slavery. Uh, white slave owners often fathered a sizable mulatto population or mixed population. And when I say fathered, I do not mean consensually fathered. Um, <clears throat> one of the one of the best examples of, of this was Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. He had six children with her, with, with her, four of whom survived into adulthood. Most of them remained as slaves until their 21st birthday. Uh, he did eventually free Sally Hemings, but it would not be until after his death. Uh, slaves were seen as a valuable asset and a primary source of wealth. So it's like the more slaves you had, the, the better you look to Southern society. Uh, one of these, one of the things that happened quite often was the slave auctions. They were the most obviously revolting aspects of slavery because, again, these people were treated like like cattle. You would be marked. Um, they would examine you. Uh, many times, you know, women would be you know put out on display. And uh, if you don't understand that, you can ask me later. Um, this was a very, you know, this is one of the greatest psychological horrors of the, of the time. And part of that reason too was because families, children, you know, married spouses, they were also separated. All right. Um, a lot of the punishments that went with this were, were often really brutal because the idea was intimidation through fear. The new western areas were the harshest for slaves. Now, western, I know you're thinking like far out west, like Utah, Colorado. We haven't quite got to that area. I'm more talking about Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama. This is going to be considered west of like the 13 colonies. Um, for the most part, slaves were denied any kind of education because the idea was to keep slaves illiterate because a slave and a sorry a literate slave was seen as a potentially dangerous slave because as we've talked about in the past um education really is power the the more education that you have the more decisions that you are able to make all right because of the addition of slavery because of people being brought over there's going to be an afro-american slave culture that's going to develop so you're going to have elements of western african culture like language uh, the oral traditions a lot of music religious practices and family patterns are still going to remain part of the american slave community 
Now, family ties were often very informal, and the extended family ties were more important than, say, just just those who are specifically related, like, you know, mom, dad, grandparents, parents. This is where you get more into aunts, uncles, cousins. In some cases, or in most cases, actually, it's not going to be those who are related by blood, but more those who are in that same condition that, you know, that you are in the same, like, like plantation. Those are the ties that are going to be the strongest because of all of, you know, the, the families were generally broken apart. So you have these people that are considered fictive kin. So these are those members that are considered family, but they're not related by blood. Uh, a lot of times children were primarily raised by their mothers who were often who often dominated the house in the slave quarters and this pattern continued after slavery was abolished because it had went on for so many years it's hard to unlearn these generational patterns now uh, children were often looked after by many members of the community so that fictive kin and a lot of that has continued on. So you have a lot of aunts and uncles that aren't necessarily aunts and uncles. And, you know, this is seen in a lot of different home lives, not just, you know, the black community, but also the white, the Asian, the Hispanic, etc. community. You're seeing more and more of this fictive kin that takes a bigger role in the family. Part of this has to do with the, instead of having several children like they were, you know, when we're when you relied on child labor so much you have the average is like two and a half is what they call it two and a half children because you know it's divided by so however many people and you end up with two and a half either way you're not having eight nine ten twelve kids anymore you're having three or four so that means fewer blood aunts and uncles fewer blood cousins so you kind of adopt this fictive kin into your ranks there these oral traditions uh, they're going to be very valuable in maintaining the african heritage as i said slaves were not educated so much as it was illegal in a lot of the south so there are going to be alternative ways of spreading culture other than writing it down and passing it down so you're going to have a lot of um the you know these oral like communication you're going to tell the story to someone else and that person tells that story and it you know passes down from the generally like the elder in the community this is also very big in uh, native american hair you know families and whatnot for the same reason the culture was kind of pushed out uh there wasn't a lot of education for native americans either when it came to like what would be considered an english education so in order to keep their culture alive because you know we talked about them getting getting rid of it through these these schools these indian schools as they were called they would have to do the same thing and pass down these traditions orally now for the the newly brought over African slave they're going to continue to teach the languages of their homeland 
So these oral traditions are going to be passed down in several different languages, like uh, Pidgin English or Creole or Gullah, G-U-L-L-A-H. Uh, certain stories like the Br'er Rabbit, which you may actually know as you know in, as an English story. These are going to be instructive, like how to survive slavery's oppressive nature, uh, religion. So there's going to be a call and response tradition from Africa. This is going to be a strong component of slave religious meetings. So religion in slave communities were often a blend of various forms of Christianity mixed with African traditions like voodoo. In certain areas, slaves attended segregated white churches. Uh, certain elements of Christianity were very appealing, like everyone is equal in heaven, uh, the idea of Christ ministering to the poor, and then the book of Exodus in the Bible was particularly popular because Jews led by Moses had escaped Egypt. So it was that idea of, you know, escape into freedom. Music was another one of these things that was brought over and was a heavy influence, uh, the rhythmic complexities of Africa were incorporated into music and drum rhythms played by slaves. Slave owners sometimes actually banned the use of drums, fearing that slaves were sending subversive messages because sometimes you could. That would be one of the things that was used in the uh, Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War. It was the rhythm of drums could tell you what you were going to do next. And it just makes me sad that they would Take out my favorite instrument. Rude. Uh, there would be clapping and patting jubba, which uh, that's J-U-B-A, which is a, which is basically slapping various parts of the body along with clapping. This became very popular, especially when you would take away, you know, the the instrument itself. The body becomes one. Uh, the banjo, which is also an African instrument, was used regularly. Uh, the European violin, or the fiddle, is going to be adapted by slaves and became a staple instrument. And that call and response singing was a popular element of slave music. So the call and response is like one person kind of calls this thing. Think of it kind of like cheerleading, actually. Where, you know, you have the cheerleader calls out to the the crowd and the crowd answers back so that's that call and response uh, music elements are going to be employed by slaves that will actually influence the development of the musical styles or genres of, of blues jazz and rock and roll all right so the burden of slavery itself so slave were slaves were deprived of any kind of basic dignity and any sense of responsibility that free people had and there, obviously we talked about you know the cruel physical and psychological treatment that went along with it and they ultimately were convinced that they were inferior and deserved their lot in life uh, slaves were denied education because it was seen to be dangerous and it would give slaves this idea of freedom which i mean that idea was already there so that's just dumb anyway uh slaves actually and one of the ways that they would fight back is they would sabotage their master's, like, system. So they would do things like stealing supplies and breaking equipment, working more slowly, and poisoning food in order to kind of, you know, get back at the the slaveholder and, you know, possibly gain their freedom. Uh, there would be many attempts to escape. The border south slaves would 
attempts were more successful and it was next to impossible to escape the lower south so like places like louisiana until you started to get more of the underground railroad ideas which it was still very difficult even with that all right so the revolts themselves so you had things like the stono rebellion uh and nat turner's revolt and a uh a mulatto in Charleston named Denmark Vesey, all of which I'm about to go over with you here. All right, so the Stono Rebellion, that was going to be in 1739. South Carolina slaves are going to flee towards Florida, killing whites on the way, but they did not succeed. But it's going to lead, and it's going to lead to a more oppressive slave system in the South during the colonial period. Uh, Gabriel Prosser, P-R-O-S-S-E-R, Prosser, sorry, uh, 1800. This is going to be a slave blacksmith in Virginia that planned a military slave revolt and recruited 150 men. Uh, the rebellion did not materialize, and Prosser and the 26 and well, not the and 26 others. That was ridiculous. And 26 others were hanged for their troubles. Uh, Denmark Vesey, V-E-S-E-Y. As, like I said, a mulatto in Charleston planned the largest ever revolt in 1822, but again, it never materialized. The A slave informer advised his master of the plot, and Vesey and 30 others were publicly hanged. So, some dissension in the ranks there. Uh, Nat Turner's Revolt, 1831. This is considered to be the most significant of the 19th century. There's going to be 60 Virginians. Who are going to end up being slaughtered mostly children and women this will be a wave of killing will slow down during down the revolts aim of capturing weapons at the local armory and fermenting a larger rebellion and this is going to be the largest slave revolt ever in the south that actually did materialize um, over 100 slaves were killed in response turner was hanged now, the significance of this is that it produced a wave of anxiety among the southern plantation owners that resulted in harsh laws that clamped down further on the slave institution. This is also going to lead to, lead to a lot of southern white paranoia. So, a lot of the whites are going to fear more reprisals by slaves like that Nat Turner revolt. And they're going to be infuriated by the abolitionist propaganda in the north as they saw it it was inciting slaves so this you know these these people that are wanting to get rid of slavery and showing what it really is to the outsider uh, they also saw biological racial superi superiority as justification for this slavery so that's that continued uh, inferiority complex kind of thing going on all right, so the white majority. By 1860, only a quarter of white Southerners owned slaves or belonged to slave-owning families. Over two-thirds of slave owners owned less than 10 slaves each, and small slave owners made up a majority of these masters. 75% uh, of white Southerners owned no slaves at all. They were located in places like the backcountry and the mountain valleys. Most of, most of these were subsistence farmers, meaning they didn't participate in the market economy. They raised what they needed for themselves for the most part. Uh, they raised corn and hogs. And the poorest were called white trash or hillbillies. Some were called crackers or clay eaters by the planters. So you're going to see a lot of issues that are going on in between or just, you know, within the classes of the white race. Uh, these clay eaters generally suffered from malnutrition and parasites, especially hookworms. Um, 
those, especially like your poor, uh, they're going to defend the slave system because it continued to prove, or what they believe would prove, white superiority, and they felt felt like they needed to be superior to someone. Uh, poor whites took comfort that they were that they were equal to their wealthy neighbors just because they weren't black. Um, social status was determined by how many slaves one owned. So poor Southern whites, some you know, someday hoped to own slaves so that they would have that status symbol. Slavery proved effective in controlling blacks, and it and ending slavery might result in race mixing and blacks competing with whites for work. So as we've discussed, most of this had to do with capitalism, and then just people being butts. Okay, so mountain whites. Now, they lived in the valleys of the Appalachian mountain ranges. They were independent small farmers that lived far from the whole idea of the cotton kingdom, lived in rough frontier environments. They pretty much hated the uh, wealthy planters and the idea of slaves. And during the Civil War, they supported the Unionists, and this would be significant in crippling the Confederacy. Free African Americans. So, free blacks numbered about 250,000 in the South by 1860. In the Border South, emancipation increased starting in the late 18th century. In the Lower South, many free blacks were mulattoes, and some bought their freedom with earnings from labor after hours. Some owned property. Uh, New Orleans had a large, prosperous mulatto community. A few even owned slaves, although this was very rare. And this was more of like we talked about with the Native Americans kind of. Um, copying the the white culture. Uh, Petersburg, Virginia had the largest free black population in the South by 1860. Virginia, a slave state. Imagine that. Okay. Uh, discrimination in the South. Obviously, it was there. Still is. Uh, blacks were prohibited from certain occupations and from testifying against whites in court. This would continue on into and after the Civil War. Uh, there was always a danger of being forced back into slavery by unscrupulous slave traders. So even if you were free, if you happened to be caught, um, they could force you into slavery, even if you had your papers and everything. About 250 free blacks lived in, or 250,000, sorry, free blacks lived in the north. Uh, large communities existed in certain northern city, cities, especially places like Philadelphia. Uh, free black communities were often centered around churches, such as the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And this is going to be first founded by Richard Allen in Philadelphia in 1794. Allen became one of the most influential black leaders in the antebellum period. Uh, he founded the Sabbath schools in order to teach literacy and supported political organizations that sought to help blacks, like abolition or abolitionists. So, discrimination in the North. Some states forbid African American entrance or denied them public education. Most states denied them suffrage. Some states segregated blacks in public facilities, and blacks were especially hated by Irish immigrants against whom they were having to compete for jobs. So here we are with capitalism again. Much of the northern sentiment against the spread of slavery into new territories existed due to the intense race prejudice, not humanitarianism. Uh, racist feelings were often stronger in the north than in the south. Abolitionism itself... Now, abolitionism is considered to be a movement in the North that demanded the immediate end to slavery. The first abolitionist movement 
uh, began during the Revolutionary Era, especially by the Quakers, because remember, they were against slavery, and they believed in, um, like, racial and gender equality. The American Col uh, Colonization Society, colonization, colonization, yeah, colonization, American Colonization Society, sorry, founded in 1817. It sought a practical solution for, in order to free blacks or not in order to free them, but in order to help those who would be freed if slavery was abolished. Uh, recolonization was supported by many prominent Northerners and Southerners who were afraid the, that manumission or the freeing of slaves would create a surplus of free blacks in the United States. Uh, Liberia, founded on, on West Africa, on the West African coast for former slaves in 1822 had to do with the American Colonization Society. This is around 15,000 freed blacks were transported over the next four decades and most U.S. blacks were not eager to go back because they saw themselves as Americans and not Africans because they were very much far removed from their African roots. Uh, they believed they were part of America's growth and culture, and by 1860, virtually all Southern slaves were native-born Americans. Uh, colonization appealed to most Northerners, including Lincoln, who felt blacks and whites could not coexist in a free society. Some fear, feared the mongrelization or the mixing of the white race. Others thought blacks were in fear and they didn't want them in large numbers in their states. Abolitionism became the dominant reform movement of the antebellum period. So the Second Great Awakening convinced abolitionists of the sin of slavery. Abolitionists were inspired that Britain freed their West Indian slaves in 1833. So, you know, like 30 years before us. Uh, radical abolitionism. So, radical abolitionists sought the immediate and uncompensated end of slavery, meaning they're not going to pay you to free people. Uh, they were influenced heavily by the perfectionism of the Second Great Awakening. William Lloyd Garrison, that I talked about in the last podcast very briefly, he published that first issue of his Liberator, which was a militant anti-slavery newspaper in Boston in 1831. It symbolized the beginning of the radical abolition movement. Uh, he demanded that the virtuous North succeed from the wicked South. All right. Even though he was considered, you know, one of the, like, militant anti-slavery people of the time, uh, he had no practical, practical solutions for ending slavery. He just wanted to end. Um, he's going to inspire a lot of abolitionists who found the anti, or the American Anti-Slavery Society, which was, again, founded by these radical abolitionists who wanted to achieve more political influence. So you had men like Theodore Dwight Weld. Uh, he was a, he was evangelized by Charles Gradison Finney in New York's burned out district that we talked about in the last chapter. Uh, this is going to be in the 1820s, and he appealed to a lot of the rural farmers in the Ohio Valley. In 1839, he's going to write American Slavery as it is. This is going to be among one of the most effective abolitionist works ever written. Uh, Wendell Phillips, he is a He's from Boston, and he's considered to be abolition's golden trumpet. Uh, he, he's considered to be one of the most important abolitionists. He had a major impact on politics during the Civil War as he argued for emancipation. He's, he's also considered to be one of the finest orators of the 19th century, and he's a product of that great 
second or you know second great awakening uh angelina and sarah grimke which we've already talked about because they were very much women, uh, women's rights advocates and abolitionists Uh, Lydia Marie Child, uh, she's perhaps the first white person to write a book favoring the immediate emancipation of slaves without compensation to slave owners. She believed women's rights could not be achieved until slavery was abolished, and she sought equal membership for women in the American Anti-Slavery Society. Author and Louis Tappan, T-A-P-P-A-N. These are wealthy New York merchants who funded the Anti-Slavery Society and William Lord Garrison's The Liberator. Now, the organization would eventually split along the gender lines having to do with women's rights issues. David Walker uh, would appeal to the wrote the Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World in 1829, which advocated violence to end slavery. Sojourner Truth, she was a freed black woman. She was pro-emancipation and a women's rights advocate. Elijah Lovejoy was a militant editor of an anti-slavery newspaper in Illinois. His printing press was destroyed four times. The fourth time it was thrown into a river and Lovejoy was killed by a mob who promptly who promptly burned his warehouse in 1837. So he's going to end up being a martyr for the abolitionist uh, reform. He was also a nativist, which may have actually contributed to his uh, murder. Martin Delaney is one of the few blacks to seriously advocate black mass recolonization in Africa. Uh, Frederick Douglass, he was considered to be the greatest of the black abolitionists. He published the North Star, which was his own abolition newspaper, and he wrote the narrative of, of the life of Frederick Douglass in 1845. Alright, so his narrative, it will depict his life, his, so this is his personal story, so his life as a slave, his struggle to learn to read and write, and finally his escape to the North at the age of 21. Now, he looked at abolition from a practical report, uh, approach, so he had this flexibility in mind. This is going to be in, in contrast to Garrison, who was stubbornly principled. Uh, he looked to politics to end slavery. So he backed the Liberty Party in 1840 and the Republican Party in the 1850s. Now, eventually, most abolitionists supported the Civil War in order to end slavery. Now, the Underground Railroad, which I talked very briefly about. So this is a chain of anti-slavery homes that harbored hundreds of slaves that would escape to Canada and they'll be led by black and white abolitionists. Women like Harriet Tubman, who was also known as like the Moses. She was an ex-slave from Maryland who escaped to Canada. And she's also going to lead 19 expeditions from Canada and rescue over 300 slaves, including her parents. Uh, she served the Union Army in South Carolina as a spy during the Civil War. The court case, Prigg versus Pennsylvania in 1842. Pennsylvania tried to prohibit the capture and the return of runaway slaves within its borders. This violated the federal government's fugitive slave law of 1793. Remember, I told you they're basically just like 
glorified slave catchers. And a lot of people in the North got really upset about that, which I would be too. Anyway, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional since it violated the federal law that protected slave owners' right to property. So here we go with that property bull again. Uh, the personal liberty laws were passed by many northern states, which prohibited state officials from assisting anyone pursuing runaway slaves. Uh, the significance was by 1850, Southerners demanded a new, stronger fugitive slave law. The existing law, dating back to the 1790s, was actually pretty weak. About a thousand runaways successfully escaped per year. Now, though it was small in number, more slaves bought their freedom than ran away. Uh, Southerners were infuriated in principle at the as the Constitution was not being obeyed by the North. Uh, some northern states, like Pennsylvania, are going to fail to provide cooperation, and southerners blamed abolitionists and claimed they operated outside the law. So there's obviously going to be a southern response to abolition. In the 1820s, southern anti-slavery societies actually outnumbered northern ones. After the 1830s, white southern abolition was basically silenced. Uh, the causes for a lot of this concern, you know, was like Nat Turner's revolt. It coincided with Gar uh, with Garrison's Liberator. So the South saw a northern abolitionist conspiracy and called Garrison a terrorist. Georgia offered a $5,000 reward for his arrest and conviction. So obviously people were going after him. Uh, the nullification crisis of 1832. Southerners were convinced the federal government might support abolition. Anti-slavery whites in the South were sometimes jailed, whipped, or lynched. Abolitionist literature was that flooded the Southern males infuriated a lot of these slave or most of these slave owners. Uh, Pro-slavery whites responded by launching a massive defense of slavery. They claimed slavery was supported by the Bible, the Book of Genesis, and Aristotle as white slavery existed in ancient Athens. They claimed slavery helped civilize and Christianize Africans, and they argued sla the master-slave relationship resembled that of a family. Talk about a dysfunctional family. Uh, George Fitzhugh, F-I-T-Z-H-U-G-H, was the most famous pro-slavery apologist. He contrasted the happiness of slaves with northern wage slaves. Uh, he stated slaves breathed fresh air in the South as opposed to stuffy factories that sickened northern workers. Uh, full employment of blacks existed in the South, he claimed, even though employment to me means I'm free and paid. But, you know, um, slaves were cared for in sickness and old age, unlike northern workers who had no safety net. But, again, you're not... No. Abolitionist literature was banned in the, in the Southern mail system. The federal government ordered Southern postmasters to destroy abolitionist materials and to arrest federal postmasters who did not comply. And again, I say the federal government, not the state, federal. Uh, the, there was a gag resolution of 1836, but basically Southerners drove it through Congress. All anti-slavery appeals and petitions in Congress were prohibited, and it was seen by Northerners as a threat to the First Amendment because you have the freedom of speech or freedom of expression. Amendment 1. Uh, Representative John Q. Adams waged an eight-year fight against it, and it was repealed in 1844. Now, the impact of all this abolitionist Abolitionism, abol, abol, yeah, ab, yeah, 
in the north. Anyway, abolitionists like Garrison and Lovejoy were very unpopular in many parts of the north. Northerners uh, revered the Constitution and slavery was protected by it. Uh, The ideal of the Union, which was advocated by Webster and others, had taken deep root. Garrison's cries to secede from the south were seen as dangerously radical, and the northern industry was dependent on the south for its economic well-being. So northern banks were owed about $300 million by southern planters, and that would be a huge amount of money to, I mean, even today to lose, but back then, I mean, that's like, you're talking in the, in the billions of money lost. Uh, New England mills were fed by the southern cotton, so these textile mills were fed by the southern cotton, meaning if they didn't get their, if they didn't get their raw material, they would no longer be able to manufacture, factories would shut down, etc., uh, there's going to be mob outbursts that will occur in response to extreme abolitionists. Lewis Tappan's New York house was ransacked in 1834 to a cheering crowd. 1835, Garrison was dragged through the streets of Boston with a rope tied around him. And Elijah P. Lovejoy was killed in Illinois in 1837. Uh, for ambitious politicians, the support of abolition was considered to be political suicide. So many sought to sidestep the issue. Kind of like a lot of our politicians today. Anything kind of rough and tumble. They want to not discuss it. Anyway. Uh, By 1850, abolitionism significantly influenced the northern mind. Many saw slavery as morally evil and undemocratic. Because, hello, freedom. Uh, Free soilers opposed extending slavery to remaining Louisiana territory and uh, Mexican secession. Uh, a free soil movement is eventually going to grow in to the Republican Party in the 1850s. Uh, here's a couple of questions that I want you guys to consider. So, to what extent was there a unified South politically, economically, and socially? And kind of analyze, I want you to analyze the effectiveness of the arguments in favor of slavery and the arguments against slavery. And what justifications did each side use to support their respective positions. These should be some things that you're kind of thinking about and writing about in order to better help you with your A-PUSH test in May.